know, Obama would basically do stand-up routines about Trump on the trail and people loved it. And it drove Trump insane. That's the, the single best way to get under his skin is to do that. Hello and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. My guest this week is Cody Keenan, who was chief speechwriter for President Barack Obama during his second term in office. Cody is out with a new book in October, Grace, President Obama in 10 Days in the Battle for America. The book centers on 10 days towards the end of Obama's presidency, a period that started with the horrific mass shooting at a black church in Charleston, South Carolina, resulting in one of the most remarkable speeches of Obama's presidency, and ended with the Supreme Court upholding marriage equality and the Affordable Care Act. Cody's book tells the incredible story of those 10 days from the perspective of Obama's top speechwriter. I called him up this week to discuss writing for Obama, how the former president reacted to the rise of Trump, and what he thinks of Biden's approach to the opposition. Cody, thanks so much for joining me. It's nice to be with you. So the book centers on 10 days in June 2015, starting with the racist shooting at the Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Tell us why you chose to center this book on those 10 days. Those 10 days really kind of encapsulated all these unanswered questions at the heart of America. You know, what Obama called, he described politics as contests to determine the true meaning of America. And over those 10 days, you have you know, this racist shooting, you have the Confederate flag starts coming down over public spaces in the South. Uh, the Supreme Court is poised to decide whether or not people get to keep their health insurance or whether or not gay people can get married. And it all goes back to you know, who are we? What does it mean to be an American and who gets to decide? And all of these issues were just kind of thrust on us over this 10 day span in a way we weren't expecting. And Obama famously ended up singing Amazing Grace in the eulogy that he ended up delivering in that shooting. Tell Tell us the story of how that speech came together. Yeah, there was actually a real question as to whether or not he was going to say anything. Going back to 2013, the Senate was poised to vote on background check legislation after the shooting in Newtown, where 20 little kids were murdered in their classrooms. And Republicans blocked a vote on it with the parents looking on from the galley. And the president said afterwards, it was about as cynical as I'd ever seen him. He said, you know, if, if we're going to decide not to do anything about this, then I want to break the cycle where after every mass shooting, I kind of end everything by going out and giving a eulogy and and letting people know it's okay. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to, what am I going to do the next time this happens? I don't want to speak. So he thought about that after Charleston. And, you know, even six days after the shooting, he still didn't want to say anything. What did change things was the families of the victims forgave the killer in court, which was extraordinary. I, you know, I remember watching the video. I remember exactly where I was thinking there's no way I could do something like that. And the president said, you know, I, I do want to go to Charleston and hug those families. I still don't know if I want to speak, but if I do, I want to talk about grace. So over the course of the week where my speechwriting team and I are putting together all these remarks for any outcome of the Supreme Court, you know, we had to write speeches just in case they did knock down the Affordable Care Act or they didn't find a right to marriage equality. So we had multiple speeches ready to go and I'm still trying to figure out how to write this eulogy. And he took the pen to it pretty heavy the night before and added the lyrics to Amazing Grace. And that morning, the final morning, uh, right after the Supreme Court ruled for marriage equality, we were on the helicopter to head to Andrews, to head down to Charleston. And he said, you know, if it feels right, I might sing it. It's fascinating in the book, you describe how there were so many speeches to give that week because you obviously had big Supreme Court decisions. I'm wondering what the process was specifically of writing a speech 
for Obama. How involved is he in the process? What does that look like writing a speech for him with him? He's heavily involved in the process. He's a writer. He wrote, right. uh, as he reminds me to this day, I just saw him last week. Uh, he wrote the 2004 convention speech by himself. The famous time. 2004 yeah. convention speech. Yeah, it's, it's what the power of a good speech can do. You know, he walked into an arena, an anonymous state senator and walked out a global megastar. So he still reminds me he wrote that by himself. And every time I'm like, yes, I know. But he, he was always heavily involved in his speeches. He, you know, at first he didn't even want to have a speechwriter. Um, hmm. Robert Gibbs talked him into hiring John Favreau back in 2005, just because as a new senator, he wouldn't have the time to write his own stuff anymore. He keeps a lot of control over his words. He's very precise with his edits and what he wants to say. So for, for a speech like the Charleston eulogy, I'd try to sit down with him in advance and pull as much out of his head as I could before writing for ones like you describe as the download, the download. Yeah. He would just, he would just talk and I would type furiously. It's actually the cover of the book. <laughs> Uh, is just is him doing the download for for speeches you know the the Obamacare and marriage equality ones we had a, a pretty solid idea of what he'd want to say in either case but Charleston was one where I really needed a lot of input from him in the years since it's it's shocking reading the book because you do write about that that debate inside the White House about whether or not Obama would give a speech because even in 2015, he was sick of giving speeches in the wake of, of mass shootings. In the years since, we've had many more. We've had particularly horrific shootings with a racist motive like the one in, in South Carolina. How do you think from a speechwriter's perspective, you keep pushing on an issue where progress just seems impossible? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> you know, we have to be honest, no speech is going to solve everything. Um, right. No no speech, no matter how good, is going to make people stop being violent or racist or unfortunately prevent Republicans from doing anything about guns. But you keep at it because you have to. You know, one of the one of the purposes behind the book is all these things that happened that week. Nowhere do I say that uh, they happened because of Barack Obama. He, he pushed and put his presidency online for Obamacare, but that was also the result of a 100-year movement for universal health care. Marriage equality was the result of a 50-year movement for LGBTQ rights. The civil rights movement, obviously, is, is ongoing. And one heartening thing is that out of the Obama years, you've had this rising gun reform movement You know, between every town and mom's demand, these grassroots organizations that popped up on their own. And that's how democracy works. I mean, that's that's how Barack Obama has always described it. We, we, we do our part. We push. The side that wins in the clash of ideas is the side that never gives up. And progress never travels in a state, straight line, as he'd say. For every two step forward, you could take a step back or even three. But if you look at the entire span of American history, the trajectory should give you hope. You write a, a lot about Obama's speech at Selma, and uh, there's actually one passage in the book where you recall a week before Obama was set to speak at the anniversary of that Selma march, Rudy Giuliani had these comments. He said that he didn't think that the president loves America and that he wasn't brought up the way you were brought up and I was brought up through love of this country, which is like the least thinly veiled racist attack I've ever read. But uh, you explain in the book how Obama sort of chose to respond to that in the speech. Could you walk us through that? Yeah, nobody nobody could ever accuse Rudy Giuliani of being smooth with his dog whistles. <laughs> no. You could practically see him sweating while he was trying to get it out. Obama never really cared about that stuff. He'd been, he dealt with, you know, attacks on his, his ethnicity, his race, his, his quote unquote birthplace forever. And there's, there's a, there's a, meaning behind all those when people do it. But I always found that riling him up was a great way to get some ideas going. <laughs> so I, I asked him when we were working on the Selma speech, you know, if he'd heard about what Rudy said and rather crassly put it, who gives a bleep what Rudy Giuliani has to say? <laughs> but he said, it, you know, it does, it does give us a point worth taking on, which is you know, who gets to decide what it means to be an American? 
You know, what are our rights and responsibilities? I'd argue that, that this is him talking. I'd argue that Selma was pretty patriotic, what those marchers did. The fact that you're willing to get your heads cracked in for your right to vote, that's pretty American. You know, that's in the, the greatest of American traditions. People people without power or privilege pushing to change the course of a superpower. You know, he was tired of the whole real America bullshit, which America is more American than the rest. We're all equally American. We're just all different. And he's seen, you know, a lot of the Republican backlash to the Obama years has really been a backlash to this kind of growing, younger, browner America that's changing and becoming even more of a melting pot. And so he wanted to talk to those people. He wanted to give today's young people their marching orders in that speech. You know, what do, what do we do? It wasn't enough for him just to commemorate Selma, but what do we do to carry on what these marchers did 50 years ago and make this country a better place? That kind of rhetoric, you know, the kind of rhetoric that we saw from Rudy Giuliani has been become pretty commonplace, I'd say, from politicians and from cable news hosts and in the media. Did those attacks, at least during the Obama years from Republicans or Fox News, let's say, did that ever phase you or Obama at all? Or was there a sort of mandate within the White House to just ignore the noise? Never phased him a bit. He, you know, really? again, he'd, he'd been used to it. I think I think when you're growing up a black man in America, you, you develop a pretty thick skin of that stuff. But also on the you know, campaign trail, he and his wife were described as doing a terrorist fist jab. And, uh, you right. know, he was he was educated in a radical madrasa and all sorts of garbage. It made us mad because we have thinner skins, you know, and we're protective of our boss. But if anything, we'd challenge channel that into uh, some of our more interesting speeches, I think. Was it hard to master his voice as a speechwriter? It was. And that's the you know, that's the point of speech writing. If you're lucky enough, you get a boss uh, that you can learn from for a while and you really want to get inside their head and not, you don't just want to know what they want to say, but why they want to say it. So that took a little while as a, as a more junior speech writer in, in, on the campaign and in the first term, I didn't get to sit with him all that much. That started changing around 2011. And, you know, I, th I think I probably, probably, so it took me a few years to really get his voice in my head. And even then, you know, like with the Charleston speech, and, and this shouldn't be a surprise to anybody, someday they'll get to see it in the archives. He tore up the back half and rewrote it longhand. And that still happened, you know, seven years into our relationship. On the other side of the aisle, and you touch on this a bit in the book, and I, I find it a really interesting part of Obama's presidency. He always seemed to have a gift of avoiding the kind of rhetoric that left-wing activists push, particularly on cultural issues. You write in the book about how Obama's rhetoric on racism focused on the idea that America was imperfect and that each generation had the opportunity to improve upon it, which is a very sort of optimistic, forward-looking message. And it's a far cry from the belief that I think a lot of activists had that have now that America needs to repent, almost self-flagellate for the sins of its past. What do you make of those kinds of arguments, which are, I think, increasingly prevalent today? Yeah, I get it. Um, I, I think you just also have to think about what's to what end. You know, if I had to put it into words, he always practiced a politics of reconciliation rather than recrimination. And he would give people the chance to change and encourage it rather than, you know, point fingers or scold. And I'd argue it's the reason why he won states like North Carolina and Indiana that a Democrat hadn't won in 40 plus years. It may not be quite as satisfying, but it's more effective. You know, if, if you are, if you're constantly scolding people or telling them they're wrong or telling them to repent, you're not going to win over a lot of people to your cause. And that's still, I, I, that's a frustrating argument to make. And I'm sure it's a frustrating argument to hear. You, you just, there are things, there, there are such concepts as right and wrong, but you also have to win elections 
to affect the change that you promised. Now, it's also it's interesting reading this book and because it reminded me of the idealism for self-government and country that was really a North Star of the Obama administration. Obama leaves office, you leave office with him, Trump comes into town, and now that idealism seems seems almost quaint because he really represented the antithesis of everything that Obama represented. He actively worked to roll back much of the progress that you guys worked towards. And you address this in the epilogue of your book. Are, are you still optimistic about the direction of politics in the years since Obama left off? In the years since? I mean, we've we've gone through a pretty significant downturn for sure. But I, in, in general, I still remain optimistic about it. And that's, there's not a naivety there, you know, and there never was in the Obama years either. He, he, people forget that when he first ran for office and he, he would talk about things like hope, there was a second part to that equation, which was that you have to work for it and you have to never give up at it. You know, there, there's no such thing as just hoping for the best and having it come true. It's a, it's a hard edged hope. And oftentimes that's more difficult. You know, I remember he came in the day after Trump won and crashed our senior advisors meeting. And he said, you know, this is, he said, people make fun of me when I talk about hope, but this is when you need hope the most. It's not when things are going great. It's when things are lousy. That's when you really need hope. And that's when you need to keep working and fighting. So I, you know, there were, there were plenty of things that actually did make me optimistic in the Trump years. It was people marching and organizing and running for office who quote unquote, weren't supposed to run for office. You know, people who are younger, people who are browner, people who are gayer, people who look like what America really looks like. Things like that make me hopeful. This, the state of our politics hasn't really been great for a long time. You know, <laughs> I'm sorry the Obama years didn't fix that and make everything perfect. But I think we all have to, there's, there's an extent to which like we all have to grow up and realize that it's, it, it doesn't take just one leader to make things work. It, makes, it takes all of us to keep pushing and keep voting in every single election, even if we don't get our way, even if it's unsatisfying. Because that's ultimately how you end up with things like marriage equality and the Affordable Care Act and any significant progressive breakthroughs. They don't just come because a charismatic president bends Congress to his will. They come because all of us keep pushing and fighting. You ended up working for Obama for a couple more years after he left the White House, right? Yep, four more years. And what was his take on the state of politics during during the Trump years and, and afterwards? You know, keep most of our private conversations private. But yeah, in general, he was, I mean, he wasn't thrilled about it. That's, that's an understatement. But he, you know, he campaigned a lot in... 2018 and 2020. And right. he would remind people that, again, progress never goes in a straight line. And we've been slapped with a wake-up call in a big way. America's a story of bursts of progress and then backlash to that progress. And it all comes down to people turning out and voting. I mean, you can trace a direct line from the current Supreme Court back to not just Merrick Garland getting blocked in 2016, but the 24 Senate or the 2014 Senate elections that gave the Senate to Republicans. A lot of people didn't turn out and vote. And that's how you ended up with Leader McConnell, who took the unprecedented step of, of denying Merrick Garland a simple vote. And then, you know, obviously Trump and his Congress rushed through a few more. But if you sit out an election, things like this happen, you know, and that's and, and there. I know there are a lot of people listening right now who'd be like, hey, man, I vote in every single election and look what we've got now. Trust me, I get it. So do I. It's extremely <laughs> disappointing and maddening and frustrating. And, you know, the Dobbs decision earlier this year is, is one of those things that almost makes you want to give up entirely. Conservatives won that fight because they never gave up for 50 long years. And so one thing I think Democrats do to be better at is being very specific rather than just saying, you need to keep voting. It's, we need two more votes in the Senate to get rid of the filibuster. 
and then you can get some stuff on guns and then you can get some stuff on abortion and, and make this country what we want it to be. Just two more votes in the Senate. That's it. That's a lot easier to swallow than just you're not voting hard enough. And safe to say that Obama is going to remain active in campaigning and politics in 2020, in 2024 and beyond. I think you can expect him to see, on the tra- see him on the trail in a couple of weeks. President Biden has taken an interesting approach in recent speeches. He's been directly casting former President Donald Trump and his supporters as extremists. And we saw that speech a few weeks ago where he appeared in front of, it was a little bizarre, in front of like the red backdrop and he formed of extremism in the Republican Party. I wonder what you make of that kind of aggressive strategy as a speechwriter. I think I think it was a smart tactic because we know that it, that it works to paint MAGA politicians as extremists. It's also not a stretch. Uh, And then, of course, there was all sorts of pearl clutching and fainting in official Washington. You know, how how ununifying to say that. Well, look, things are different now. You you had a political party and a president of the White House who actively orchestrated or at least minimum cheered on an insurrection where people stormed the Capitol building. You've now got Republicans running in offices across the country who are already election deniers and they're promising to overturn the next election. I mean, this is pretty serious stuff. And if you're not willing to call it out for what it is, then you're not leading. So I, I think it was, you want to be careful not to, and this gets back to, you know, politics of, of uh, reconciliation versus recrimination. You want to be careful not to paint Americans with a broad brush. I think what you want to do is, you know, these MAGA politicians are taking us to places we don't want to go. And and almost every single one of their policies are actually wildly unpopular, but they get away with it by throwing up all sorts of smoke and sand at election time. You know, they'll, they, like they always do, they, they'll start running on crime. They'll start running on immigration. They'll start running on things to try to scare the heck out of people because it works. It, it worked back in 2014 when, you know, the Republican platform was, it was all about ISIL and children crossing the southern border and Ebola. Remember Ebola, how that was going to kill I everybody? Do. And they'll pull the same playbook again. You know, I, I watch a lot of Fox News. Obviously, this is the media I'm podcast. Sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll survive. But, it, you know, a lot of Fox News programming is hitting Biden for engaging, especially now in the, in the last couple of months, is hitting Biden for engaging in demonization of his political opponents. And very similar case to this years-long meltdown of when Hillary Clinton said that some Trump supporters she would call deplorable. It's a painfully silly argument to hear after four years of Trump, who said that kind of stuff on an hourly basis. But do you think it's effective at all against what Biden is trying to do here? Do you think that sort of rhetoric is worth avoiding because of the response that it gets on Fox News? Or do you think you're going to get that sort of criticism no matter what? You're going to get it no matter what. I mean, I'm going to guess that I do not watch Fox News at night. That's why That's why I'm grateful for you. But I assume after, after a half hour of calling Democrats just a bunch of uh, fanged pedophiles to suddenly lay into Joe Biden for that is pretty rich. Um, right. But you, you do want to be careful again to not cast voters that way, right? That was that was a just a, it was a big unforced error on Hillary Clinton's part because once you once you tell of tell half the country or you know it's never half, but you tell a whole swath of voters that they are irredeemable, deplorables, racist, or whatever. Well, why are they ever going to listen to you again? Why would they ever even consider giving you their vote? They're just going to retreat further to their corners. So, I think you I think you know I, I would I would caution Biden to refer specifically to the politicians, because I think part of their tactic is to, is to try and give Republican voters who are turned off by this stuff 
um, who are turned off by abortion bans, who are turned off by storming the Capitol, who are turned off by using human beings as, you know, political ploys, when it, like, like uh, Governor DeSantis did. You want to give them the permission structure not to vote for MAGA Republicans, even if they don't vote for Democrats. And it's never great to try to convince people not to vote, but, but you want to be careful not to give them a reason to vote for those people. Do you think there are Democratic politicians right now who appeal to both sides of the political aisle, perhaps Republicans who are, are, are skeptical of Donald Trump and maybe even Ron DeSantis? And obviously no one's going to have the uh, rhetorical prowess of Barack Obama, but that are that you think have electoral potential uh, perhaps in 2024 or 2028. Yeah. And, you, you know, you keep in mind that we just we are polarized and almost everybody has a 50 percent ceiling. I don't have any polling to back this up, but I, you know, I, I like watching Governor Pritzker. I like watching Governor Polis. I love watching Beto. I don't know the answer to that. I'm sure there's some that are that are polling really high, but but there aren't a ton, you know, there aren't many in Congress, I don't think. But there aren't many Republicans either who, you know, everybody pays attention to DeSantis because he pulls these stunts. But I'd be interested in seeing how he pulls nationwide. I don't think there, there are going to be any Republicans right now cracking 50. When you watch Ron DeSantis either give speeches or go for press conferences or stuff, are you impressed by anything that he does? Do you see him as a, a serious candidate? He's got all the charisma of a tree stump. And, you know, I don't remember who said this, uh, but I just died laughing. You know, the first time he's on debate stage with Trump and Trump calls him Miss Florida, like he's toast. I saw, I, I heard that as well. It was like, he's doing all of these stunts. He's going to appeal to like the cruelest elements of the Republican Party for four years. And he's going to get up on a debate stage. Trump's going to call him Miss Florida and it's going to be over. Yeah. Somebody tweeted that and I just died laughing. <laughs> and, you know, the, I mean, the stunts are useful in that. Look at us. We're talking about him. But what do they ever actually achieve, right? Trump was great at getting attention for himself. And he, he didn't have so much an ideology as just what benefited him in any given moment. Um, but what does he have to show for it? You know, all they really, all Republicans really got through in those four years were massive tax cuts for billionaires. He unleashed a whole lot of cruelty by creating permission structure for people to be cruel and engage in political violence. And then he lost. So it's always hard to make an argument that he's, he's a really great communicator. So you think there's still room for the sort of high-minded, optimistic rhetoric that Obama engaged in, even while much of politics has become sort of crude and base? I think people are hungry for it. Um, but again, it, it comes with, it, it's not naive to be optimistic or to be hopeful. It's actually kind of subversive these days and hard-edged. You should have a hard-edged hope that right. if you roll up your sleeves and keep at it and get other people to join your cause, you can change things for the better. I mean, the events of this book prove it. And it was only seven years ago. There's no reason right. we can't get back to that place. So the Biden White House has an interesting relationship with Fox News. The The network is is relentlessly attacks the administration, but there's some comedy between the two. There are some scoop exchanges and other things like that. What do you think of, of Fox News? Do you see the network any differently than you did during the Obama administration? Not really. I don't. You know, they're basically just they're, they're if there is a difference, it's that they're less a propaganda arm of the Republican Party. And now they kind of lead it. They're 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 basically the, the message strategists of the Republican Party. And if it's if it's even possible, they've gotten lower and worse than they were during the Obama administration. And that's saying something. What do you mean by they're the messaging Arm. I think Republicans now basically follow Fox News rather than Fox News being uh, amplifying what's coming out of the Republican Party. I think the roles have switched. And, you know, I don't know who's calling the shots there. Um, 
but but basically Republican politics now is nothing but trying to outdo each other as to who can excite the base more. There is no ideology anymore besides cruelty. There is, you know, you, you knew for decades, my, my father's Republican Party, and he long since left, was uh, you put it on a bummer sticker, right? Low taxes, less government, stronger military. They don't even necessarily stand for those things anymore. So it, all it really is, is cruelty as part of a backlash to the fact that America is changing. And they just kind of, you know, this is the Adam Server argument. They're just, they're outdoing each other to see, to prove who can be the cruelest to anyone that represents a different kind of America. Do you think the media climate has gotten worse? Do you think we're more siloed than we were in the past? Is it harder to break through now as a, as a candidate? We're definitely more siloed. I don't, I don't know if that means worse. Um, mm -hmm. I think if, if you put me on the spot, yeah, net net, it's probably worse, but you know, everybody gets, what is good is that there are more voices out there that are not the traditional gatekeepers. Um, what, what's tougher to break through is that we can create our own media silos and every we can, you can go a week without hearing a single dissenting view or anything that makes you think or change your mind. And that's a real challenge to, to get out of your comfort zone and read something that makes your blood boil as, as Obama used to say, you know, there are plenty of times I'm disappointed with it. I mean, that's been true forever, but like after the, the Biden speech, rather than think about the content, it's just massive pearl clutching. Like, oh my God, how uncivil, you know, there's like a five alarm fire at Cafe Milano in DC where, where everybody goes and has dinner with the Saudis. There, So you can tell there's some aspects of politics I don't miss. <laughs> yeah, I can tell. One, uh, this is sort of a random question. I've just always been curious. When Trump got elected, a lot of people pointed to a speech that Obama gave at the White House Correspondents' Dinner in <laughs> 2012. And you were on the speechwriting team at the time. You were not yet chief uh, speechwriter. Obviously, we can't blame that night for Trump running. But do you look back, does the team look back on that night ever and have any regrets taunting Trump? No, I would have gone harder. <laughs> really? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was pretty brutal. Yeah, but I, I still would have gone harder. I mean, look, if we... Yeah. It's Trump. If, you can always go harder. If even even five years after that, America couldn't stop Donald Trump from getting elected, you know, then shame on us. There, there, right. there are a lot more, there are a lot more guardrails that should be in place than just um, a bunch of pointed jokes. One of the things that was so confounding about the Trump rise is that, and I guess you can explain this by his just total lack of shame. He went through 17 other Republican candidates in the primaries just by dragging them all down into the mud. Do you think there's any way that you can effectively combat Trump and his own rhetoric as a candidate that's opposing him. It, actually, with humor, I'd, I'd go yeah. right back to the 2011 correspondence dinner. And the best way to take down Trump is is by mocking him. I mean, look at we had a lot of fun on the campaign trail in 2020. You know, Obama would basically do stand up routines about Trump on the trail and people loved it. And right. it drove Trump insane. That's the, the single best way to get under his skin is to do that. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm sure someone on Ron DeSantis' team is trying to work on some quote unquote zingers, but uh, I just don't think that guy has the charisma to pull it off. But um, if somebody else did, that would be, that would be quote unquote fun to watch in, in kind of a cringing at a car crash type way. But uh, totally. That's, yeah, that's you know, the way you do it. And you just said something really interesting too about yeah. no, no shame. I think about this all the mm -hmm. time. One of the biggest problems with our politics right now is that there is just no sense of shame among any Republican politician. There used to be, that almost used to be the guardrail to democracy was, you know, even Republicans had a sense of shame and there were just things you didn't do or say. And that's all kind of out the window now. It was, it was truly Trump's biggest superpower. It's the fact that he could get up on stage, say one plus one equals seven, 
And when he got ruthlessly mocked for it, he just kept it moving. Whereas politicians, you know, before him were shamed into apologizing, et cetera. And too um, often the media coverage of one plus one equals seven wouldn't be, is that true? It would be, mm-hmm. how does it play? How's it playing? Right. Is it successful? Does it yeah. win? Yeah. My last question, what was Obama's greatest speech? Selma, the speech he gave in Selma. And, you know, I say this because he, he threw himself into it. It came straight. Mm-hmm. This is, I made this the prologue of my book for a reason because he, he gave the book its thesis. You know, when we were, uh, this was after uh, Rudy kind of spittled all over himself. It was Obama who added to the speech that, that, you know, Selma was not a clash of armies, but a clash of wills, a contest to determine the true meaning of America. And I think you can describe our politics that way. That speech was so great because John Lovett once called it patriotism for grownups, which I really loved. <laughs> that was Obama's purest distillation of how he feels about America and what American exceptionalism really is. It isn't this right-wing notion that you know, we were born perfect and therefore anyone who tries to change the country hates it. It's that actually written into our constitution is the fact that we are imperfect, you know, in order to form a more perfect union is our charge. And when each generation of Americans works and pushes sometimes at great cost and sacrifice themselves, this country does change for the better in ways that a lot of other older, more homogenous countries can't, you know, our, our diversity of not just skin color, but thought and experience is one of our greatest strengths. And it's also fear of that is is really what's driving the Republican Party these days. Cody Keenan, uh, thank you so much for joining me. The book is Grace, President Obama and 10 Days in the Battle for America. It is available for pre-order now and it's out in October. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And check out coverage of my conversation with Cody Keenan on Mediaite.com.